We open our Bibles and turn in the Word of God tonight to John 8. John 8. We're going to read the first 30 verses of this chapter. John 8. Take note of verses 1 through 11. Those verses will constitute our text tonight. I'm not reading them again. Verses 1 through 11. Jesus went into unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came, and whither I go. But ye cannot tell whence I come, and whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh. I judge no man. And yet, if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. And they said unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. These words spake Jesus in the treasury, as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he saith, Whither I go, ye cannot come. And he saith unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. 
I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do not for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. This far we read God's word tonight. As I made mention, our text tonight is found in verses 1 through 11, in the event that's described for us there's, there. The Jewish leaders were out to destroy Jesus, especially at this point in his ministry. He had rejected their work righteousness, condemned them openly before the people, and taught the people differently. In their eyes, Jesus was nothing more than a rebel and really a no-count who had come from a little village in Galilee, and no one of any significance, they thought, came from Galilee. They didn't like it that Jesus was teaching against their work perfection and was instead teaching the forgiveness of sins and mercy. And for that reason, Jesus now, because of the hatred of the Jews, walked no, no more openly among Jewry, John tells us in John 7, verse 1. But one of the important feasts in Israel was again to be held in Jerusalem. It was the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. And as a faithful Jew, Jesus always attended these feasts. He did this one too. And at this feast, Jesus had some of the sharpest confrontations with the Jews that he had ever had in his ministry. Their hatred for Jesus crackled, and all the people knew it. All the people could see that. And yet, Jesus had attracted many of the people through his teachings. The day of the feast, Jesus and his disciples resorted, as was often the case, or the day after the feast, Jesus and his disciples often resorted to the Mount of Olives, and he did that too, the day after the feast. But then the very next morning, Jesus was found once again in the temple. Suppose the Pharisees and the Sadducees hoped that Jesus would no longer be around after the feast. Here, Jesus appeared once again in the temple and began to teach the people. He sat down, and throngs began to surround him as he sat there in the temple to teach. But this time, the scribes and the Pharisees well, they were ready for him. 
They thought they had discovered a fail-proof way of discrediting Jesus now in the eyes of the multitude. And that's what we're going to consider also this evening. Before doing so, however, we must know that the account we consider tonight is not found in many of the early Greek manuscripts of the Bible. Not found in them. In other words, there is the possibility that it maybe was not included in John's original gospel account, but perhaps added later by a scribe. And for that reason, some commentators refuse to write about these verses, and most ministers refuse to preach on these verses. But it is found in some early Greek manuscripts and has been accepted by the church since earliest of times, as is evident from the fact that it's recorded for you and me in our versions of the Bible. Besides that, we realize that the passage before us contains an important word of God to the church of Jesus Christ, and therefore becomes itself a necessary part of the scripture, and that's probably why even the early church accepted it as a part of the scripture. For that reason, we're going to ignore many of the critics of this passage of God's word, and we're going to learn what Jesus himself teaches us in the account that we have before us. In this account, our Savior had to deal with two important matters. First, with the hypocritical attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees. They confronted Jesus with, with what may seem like, anyway, a legitimate reason. How does the law deal with an adulterer? But they had come merely to entrap Jesus and embarrass him in the front of the people so that they could somehow discredit him. So that was the first matter Jesus had to deal with. The second matter was that of the woman who had without a doubt sinned against the law of God and deserved to be punished for her sin too. Jesus could not simply walk away now from her without dealing with what she had done wrong. What would Jesus now say to this sinner? Both of these matters we have to address as they apply to us today. The account has much to say about our own dealings and our own attitude toward a repentant sinner. And then, finally, the Word of God is going to teach you and me as well how we are called upon in gratitude to walk in holiness before God. With those things in mind, we consider the woman caught in adultery. In the first place, the self-righteous Pharisees. Secondly, the forgiven sinner. And then finally, the command unto holiness. John makes reference in the passage that we have before us tonight to the scribes and to the Pharisees. And we're not going to make an assumption as to the identity of these two groups of people or parties of people in Israel. You see, scribes were those men in Israel that had given themselves over to copying the scriptures. They didn't have a printing press. 
like you and I do today. If they wanted additional copies of the Bible, men had to sit down and they had to meticulously write out and copy out the scriptures. Scribes did that. But the scribes did not merely write out or make copies of the scriptures. Scribes were those who poured themselves over the Old Testament scriptures in order to determine the meaning of the word of God and then tell people about that. So that was one group of men or party of men now that came to Jesus with this woman. The Pharisees. The Pharisees were a sect that began as a reform movement actually in the nation of Israel during the intertestamentary period. The nation of Israel had become thoroughly worldly minded at that time. And the Pharisees set themselves to the task of, of bringing the church at that time back to the laws of Moses and the Old Testament scriptures. A very noble cause. But through the years, both the scribes and the Pharisees began to insist upon salvation on the grounds of a strict keeping of those laws of Moses, of work righteousness. And then to make matters worse, they added all kinds of their own little laws to the laws of Moses. And that became known as the tradition of the elders or the Talmud. It dictated exactly how God's people had to live given every little circumstance of their life. So they added law upon law and precept upon precept and insisted that righteousness was earned now by means of the keeping of all of the traditions of the elders as well as the laws of Moses. Both the scribes and the Pharisees were held in the highest esteem in the nation of Israel by the people because of their their ability to keep better than anyone else those laws of Moses and the traditions of the elders. They sat in the highest seats, the foremost seats in the synagogue and were honored. Well, it was those scribes and Pharisees against whom Jesus leveled much of his preaching and they hated Jesus. So now they approached him with the wickedness of their hearts. We read this in verses 3 and 4 of the word of God we consider tonight. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman has, was taken in adultery in the very act was not as if these men suddenly caught this woman in the act of adultery and then immediately dragged her now before Jesus in order to ask him what they ought to do with her. This was a trap. A trap deliberately set by these religious leaders to ensnare Jesus. We read at the very beginning of verse 6, of our text, this they said, tempting him, that is now testing him, that they might have 
to accuse him. That's why they brought this woman to him. The woman was probably taken to them by her accusers who caught her in the very act of adultery. The case could not be disputed. She was guilty. Now, the identity of this woman obviously is not important for the account before us. She was either a wife who was unfaithful to her husband, which more than likely was the case, or she lay with a man who was himself unfaithful to his wife. We say that, of course, because she was caught in adultery, and that word adultery implies that. These leaders now use this woman who had been brought to them perhaps a day or two, who knows, before, and they drag her into the midst of all of these people that were sitting around Jesus, and they plop her down in front of Jesus, and then they spoke these words in verses 4 and 5. Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? She was guilty. As we said, she was guilty of violating the law of God, the laws of Moses. We read of that law in particular in Leviticus 20, verse 10. And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The Jewish punishment, in particular, that was inflicted on those who were worthy of such punishment was that of being stoned. And all that was true. This woman, according to Old Testament law, deserved to be stoned. But then these scribes and Pharisees, as members of the ruling body themselves, had the right to do the stoning. Why did they need to come to Jesus now to ask him what they must do with her? They did not need Jesus' consent as to what they ought to do with this woman. No, the purpose of coming to Jesus with this woman was in order to defame him. You see, if he would have answered and said, you're right, you're right, go and stone her, then he would be contradicting what they felt he was preaching and teaching, that is, I come to give the forgiveness of sins. I come to show mercy to the sinner. And if he would say, surely you, you, you have to stone her, that would contradict what he says and that would defame him in the eyes of the people. On the other hand, if he denied the need for punishment according to the laws of Moses, then rightfully they could label him as openly defying the law and therefore truly was one who was a rebel. So the Pharisees maliciously thought that Jesus would not be able to wiggle out from under this one. Moses says this, 
What do you say? The scripture, the law of the scripture says this. What do you say? Are you going to contradict the law? Jesus' response was appropriate. We read in verse 6 of our text tonight. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. By this action, Jesus was showing his thorough disgust with what these leaders had asked him. But with that writing on the ground, he also was revealing their hypocrisy. Why did Jesus even have to answer them? Why did they have to make a point of dragging this woman in front of all of these people in order to hear what he had to say to them? What were they trying to prove now? The silence spoke of that, you realize. Were they interested, truly interested in carrying out righteously the dictates of the law in order to bring glory to the name of God? Is that why they brought her before him? Were they interested in the repentance and the salvation of the soul of this woman? Did they bring her to God? out of their love for God and for what was right, and out of a love for their neighbor. Is that why she was brought there? Not at all. The hypocrisy of these men was so thick you could cut it with a knife. And everybody could see that, you see. So in disgust, Jesus simply ignores them, and he bends down to the ground, and he doodles with his finger in the dirt. Silence. Damning silence. These wicked men were persistent, however. They weren't going to let Jesus not answer them. So they kept on, at least according to verse 7, they kept on asking Jesus, what would you do? What would you do? Perhaps Perhaps already their consciences were beginning to smite them. Not convict them, mind you, but were pricking them at this point. So then after a while, Jesus deals the final blow when he stands up and he looks at the scribes and the Pharisees and he says to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Would these wicked leaders pick up a nearby stone now to cast it at this woman? Dare any of them pick up a stone in order to cast them at this woman? There were probably a few of them that surely would have wanted to do that. But dare they pronounce by their actions that they were perfect? that they had no sin themselves when all these people now watching them had heard them and knew that there was no man who was without sin. Jesus was writing in the dirt again. 
After he asks the question, he bends down and he starts to write in the dirt once again. And that silence around them was growing even louder. So of these leaders, we read in verse 9, And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Their conscience convicted them, we learn. Did these leaders of the people, because they were convicted of sin, repent? And in true sorrow now turn away from their sin and, and, and leave this woman alone before Jesus? No, that was not the case. Even unbelievers' conscience can oftentimes prick them when they do something wrong. And there was no true sorrow in what they had done. The shame of what they did was brought to the foreground now by Jesus in front of all of these people, and that shame had more to do with these men turning around and walking away rather than the fear of God. Shame. Shame. One by one, we are told, beginning at the oldest, the oldest of the Pharisees and the scribes, knowing the wisdom that they had better walk away, and then to the youngest, that would be, well, just a bit more stubborn, perhaps, to maintain their integrity in front of the people, they all turned around and everyone eventually walked away. They could not handle the open shame. And slowly they walked away from the people. You know, people of God, some will say at this particular point that Jesus was teaching here that in the church, discipline is not necessary. God's law said she needed to be punished, they would say. But then Jesus, well, he, he contradicted that. Jesus did not condemn the leaders of the church with his words if it were not his intention to do away with discipline. I mean... Love covers everything, doesn't it? But that's not true, you see. This was not the point Jesus was trying to make, as we will find also in a few moments. These men were not seeking justice. Certainly not. If they were, this woman would have been put on trial. Not before Jesus. He would have been, she would have been put on trial before the judges. And these wicked leaders now came to Jesus in order to prove that it was by the deeds of the law that man was righteous before God. Hmm. That's not stretching what was going on here. It may not seem as if that's what they were trying to prove at this particular point, that man is righteous before God by the deeds of the law. But they were teaching, of course, that if that law of God is violated and we are punished on account of that law, then the reverse has to be true, too. 
that by a strict observation of the laws of Moses, we will live. And there is salvation by means of keeping those laws. In other words, by keeping the law, we merit something in God's sight. Keeping of the law will determine whether I'm going to enter into eternal life. So I must earn my place there. Show us, Jesus, how that's wrong. What do you say should happen to this woman? Jesus didn't give in to their reasoning, of course. Instead, he, in a very convincing way, revealed to these men, by the deeds of the law, no man is justified. Not even you, scribes and Pharisees. Go ahead. Cast the first stone. If you think that you are justified by your works, throw the first stone. Certainly, the church must discipline. But those who discipline in another in a church in the church are deeply aware of their own sin. Not they were like the scribes and they are not like the scribes and the Pharisees were. The men who are called to discipline in the church are deeply aware of their own sin and of their own righteousness that can be found only in the cross of Jesus Christ himself. Those who discipline in the church are not those who boast in their own works as if somehow they are a bit more righteous than the one that they're disciplined. That's never the case. Further, discipline must be carried out in humility and out of love for the brother or the sister who sins with the intent to bring them to faith and repentance again. That's the purpose of discipline. And then finally, discipline must be carried out for the welfare and purity of the church. When those motives are there, when those motives are clear in the church, discipline is necessary and it's good for the church of Jesus Christ and even for those who are being disciplined. So Jesus is not militating against that here, you see. That brings us to the second matter. Jesus had to deal with the sin of this woman. Pharisees were gone, scribes were gone. Here, this woman was standing in the midst of the people around her before Jesus Christ. And this woman was clearly guilty. Clearly guilty. There was no reasoning around it. He already noted that she was caught in the very act of adultery itself. She had committed a heinous sin. And she had ruined her relationship with her husband, or had ruined the relationship, at least, of another man with his wife. She had committed adultery. And I know how the wicked world, beloved saints, would perceive this kind of thing. The woman made a mistake. That's all. She was caught up in the moment. She couldn't help herself. In fact, such a deed is almost acceptable, if not acceptable, in the world in which we live. But what may be acceptable in the church is not acceptable, or in the world, is not acceptable with God. 
God has instituted marriage. We well know that he has given the sexual relationship to a man and a wife to enjoy only within the marriage bond. He uses such a relationship to bind them together in one flesh within marriage. And there is a sacred trust that ought to exist between a man and his wife. This woman had dishonored her head. That was no innocent act. It was wickedness. And she violated the very heart of the marriage bond. She broke the covenant vows that she had spoken. So her sin was no little thing. So horrible is it in the sight of God that God had commanded his Old Testament church that that kind of an act was punishable by death. He stoned a person that did that. After the long silence, while Jesus stooped to the ground to doodle in the dirt for a little while with his finger, he finally raised himself again a second time. He looked around him. None of her accusers were there anymore. They had all left. We read in verse 10 now of our text tonight. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. No, Lord, these men haven't condemned me. And though it's not recorded, it is safe to assume that the woman did not stand before Jesus Christ now with a haughty indignation. She was not standing before Christ with this same sin yet hidden in her heart. Christ would have known that. And if she escaped some kind of punishment, she was going to return to that sin. We may assume that that was true of this woman. She addressed Jesus Christ as Lord. She recognized in him that he indeed had the power at his hand to condemn her for her sin. And not before men, but before God. She realized that this man had power and authority and that before God and that her punishment would be far greater than mere punishment by earthly death. So Jesus says to her this, neither do I condemn thee. What? Just that simple? The woman didn't even make a confession of her sin after all. Look at her sin. Look at the irreparable damage and hurt she did to her husband. And now Jesus just says to her, neither do I condemn thee? That's so wrong. That's so wrong. Really?
he that is without sin among us. Let him first to be the cast of stone, or first to be to cast a stone. Have we failed to look at our own sin? Yes, but my sin wasn't as great as her sin. I didn't hurt anybody by the sin that I have committed. Do we not know? Do we not understand? Every sin that we commit against the most high majesty of God offends him and is worthy of punishment. Punishment eternally. Every sin we commit, every sin. Now who's going to cast the first stone at this woman? Are we going to lift ourselves up in pride? Are we going to lift ourselves up in self-righteousness as did the Pharisees and condemn this woman, though Jesus himself does not condemn her? Would we do that? Jesus is the Lord who will stand in judgment over her and over you and me in the last day. Not we. And he determines the motives of a man's heart and of a woman's heart. If we were judged by the law, then we realize too that no man would be justified in the sight of God. You and me either. Jesus said to her, you're not condemned by me. But by casting this sentence upon the woman, neither do I condemn thee, Jesus now acquitted her of her horrible sin. That doesn't mean that Jesus let her go free in her sin. We well know that God never lets you and me go free in our sin. God never lets us go free in our sins. God punishes sin. But this woman's sin, along with our sins, were laid upon the cross or the shoulders of Jesus Christ at the cross. And he bore her sin and our sins there. And when he hung on the cross, God punished Jesus Christ for the sins that we have committed against him. There, the wrath of God was poured out upon his only son for the sins that we've committed. That's our punishment. That was her punishment. And as a result of that, we're righteous now before God. Not on anything that we've done, but because of what Christ has done. There is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have been justified in the blood of Jesus Christ. So is she. Her sin was punished. Punished in the person of Jesus Christ himself. Freely. By God's grace alone. Surely then we do not dare raise our eyes, do we, and condemn this woman any longer. And we do not 
presume to judge the inner workings of God and his grace in her heart. Was this woman guilty before the civil law? Well, the magistrates would have to determine that, wouldn't they? But she was no longer guilty before God. She had now experienced the blessed forgiveness of sin, same as you and I who are humbled by our sin. What blessedness was hers? What blessedness is ours? In this, Jesus teaches us something, however. He teaches us that our God is merciful. And that's a beautiful term that the scripture uses, mercy. It means that God pities his elect people in their sin. And that he determines always to deliver us from the burden and the misery of that sin in our lives. Scriptures abound with testimony of God's mercy upon his people in Jesus Christ. And when we cry to him, God be merciful to me, the sinner, God is merciful to us. And he forgives us mercifully of our sin. And he smiles upon us for Jesus' sake, out of his love for us. He gives you and me something that we do not deserve whatsoever in our lives. He gives us a place in the family and in the household of him, our God. Now, that means if God is so merciful toward you and me, that you and I must be a people of mercy too. We learn in James 2, verse 13, for he shall have judgment, or for he for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. In other words, James is saying this: that man who shows no mercy in his life to others. When they are sorry for what they have done wrong, will receive no mercy himself from God. Mercy rejoices against judgment. Paul's injunction to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 7 regarding a young man who had been excommunicated by the church of Jesus Christ there in Corinth for committing the horrible sin of incest. He had come back to the church and he had repented of his sin, his horrible sin. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 7, so that contrarywise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him him, lest perhaps such in one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Mercy rejoices against judgment. But Jesus doesn't leave it at that either, does he? Neither do I condemn thee, verse 11, go 
and sin no more. He adds an important command there to this woman that we may not overlook. Go and sin no more. Ah, yes. Sanctification follows hard upon justification. Holiness follows hard upon forgiveness. And the meaning of Jesus is very clear. You, woman, have fallen into sin. You deserve to be condemned in the sight of God, and now I have not condemned you. I have showed you mercy when you should perish in your sin. I have justified you. Now go. Leave me. Take up your life again. But do not walk in that way of sin any longer. And do not return to your lust. Do not return to an immoral life. That was the command of Jesus Christ at length that he made in short. Do not be as a dog that returns to his vomit. Go home and sin no more. And no doubt, no doubt this meant to go home and you had better make reparation for your sin with your husband. Plead for forgiveness from him. In humility, admit and confess your sin toward him. And be faithful to him. And be faithful to the law of God. Walk in his commandments. Love God. Love the neighbor. Jesus gives us that command as well. Because you see, it's a tendency of our own sinful flesh also to walk in sin. Isn't that true? That's why we have to plead every day on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We battle against the evil lusts of our flesh. And the spirit in us makes war with the flesh in you and me. And for that reason, we receive this command of Christ as well. Are you thankful for your salvation? And then go and sin no more. It is not that a life of holiness flows naturally out of the child of God, you know. We've been cleansed in the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good works flow out of you and me. We've been sanctified. We've been made holy. But we battle against our flesh, and that flesh follows strong after sin. So the injunction to those, then, whom God has forgiven of his sins is that through the Spirit now we must go and sin no more. The Scripture is replete with all kinds of injunctions in that way. And we are enjoined, therefore, to walk in the way of obedience before God. We strive to do that. We strive. Why? Because Jesus has said to me and to you, I do not condemn you. Rather, I have confessed you before my God. You're mine. I've covered you in my blood. So with willing hearts, therefore, 
we go forth and we sin no more. Amen. Our Father and our God in heaven, again into thy presence we come, confessing our sins, confessing our need for the cross of Jesus Christ because we'll never find righteousness in ourselves. Our righteousness is found only in him and through his work that he has performed for us on the cross. And yet, Father, thou hast sanctified us and thou hast bound us to Jesus Christ in the true and living faith. Therefore, we ask thy mercy, thy grace, that we might go forth in our lives and walk in a way of holiness before thee, setting aside the sins that so easily beset us, running the race. Wilt thou guide us, therefore, by thy word now in this week to come. May we be those, Father, who bow before thee in all humility and who plead on the mercy that is found in Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.